Good afternoon, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, good job, Chewy. In the event that you didn't uh, catch Chewy or you're just walking in, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians, all of chapter 5 this afternoon. Uh, if you're new, my name is Marco. I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. Thank you all so much for being here. It's a joy to get to preach God's Word to you. I missed you all last week. My wife and I were up in Hutto which is like 30 minutes north of Austin, and we were preaching at this, or I was preaching at this uh, uh, small church plant called Redeemer Hutto, so super creative name, and, uh, and, and it was great. So they send you greetings and many, many blessings, but we'll talk about that another day. Uh, what do I got for you? We got Bibles. So if you need a Bible, that is our gift to you. We love to preach from God's Word. We love God's words. We love to gift God's Word. So take one with you. Take a couple so that you hook up some of your friends when it comes to uh, God's Word. And so with that being said, let me pray and, uh, and we'll dig into our time. Once more, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're looking at the entire chapter, all 13 verses. Let me pray. God, as we begin your time, or as we begin our time, Lord, would you bless this time? Lord, we, we, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness, for your grace for us, in us, and through us. God, as we consider some tough words from you through Paul, even in some of that that might be challenging, may it point us to your character by your spirit, would you comfort and challenge us? And Lord, for those who know Jesus, may, may they come to know him better today. For those who don't, may they come and know Jesus today. May the, may the reading of your word, Lord, be sweeter than honey for us today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right. Well, if we could reduce Paul's letter to the Corinthians to a movie scene, I would argue that the best movie scene that fits this letter would be from The Sandlot, where Smalls and Ham are hanging out, and they get to this conversation about s'mores. Now, if you've never, if you've never seen The Sandlot, this is a classic film from the sweet year of 1993, and it's about a neighborhood group of kids who love baseball. And Smalls is the newest kid in the neighborhood, and homeboy, honestly, he just wants to fit in, and he just wants some friends. That's, that's all he wants. But he's so out of touch with baseball, uh, like he doesn't know who the great Bambino is, uh, and at the same time, uh, he's out of touch with what the rest of the kids consider normal. So in this one scene, they're having a sleepover. And so Small comes up, and, uh, and there's Ham waiting for him. And Ham asks him, and maybe you know, but Ham asks Smalls, hey, do you want a s'more? And Smalls replies by saying, s'more what? And Ham says, no, 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 pointing to the ingredients in front of him, right? He points to the ingredients and says, no, 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 do you want a s'more? So a little bit more emphatic. Classically, Smalls replies by saying, I haven't had anything yet, so how can I have some more of nothing? And so Ham, with great frustration in his eyes, replies by saying, you're killing me, Smalls. And so you can sense the frustration both in Ham and in the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the Corinthians, especially in this chapter. So if we could summarize maybe this letter, maybe this chapter, it's Paul saying, you're killing me, Smalls. And so as we dive deeply into uh, this letter, what we're beginning to see is just how much they are straying from their identity in Christ and their actions are evidence of that. And what's, what's trippy about this is we, we haven't even gotten into the Jerry Springer side of the letter, okay? So, so before we even go that, that route, Paul begins to address just so much more of their immaturity, and the effects of that. So in our text today, I want to set up one of the topics that's addressed, and this is the topic of church discipline. It's not a popular topic of discussion in churches. Uh, many churches don't preach or teach on church discipline, but it is necessary. It's necessary because God calls the church to be holy as He is holy. And what you and I need to reckon with is that the pursuit of holiness doesn't begin with what we do, but with who God says we are. The pursuit of holiness begins with our identity. And this is what the Corinthians are forgetting. This is what you and I often forget. And so we're going to look at three ideas of what a holy church consists of. And we're going to begin this with verses 1 through 6. So here's the first one. A holy church is a repenting church. In this section of verses 1 through 6, we're given the reason for why church discipline is needed in the Corinthian church. So beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And so, number one, this is a reference back to chapter one, where Paul has received a report from some in the church about some of the Jerry Springer things that are going on. And that's why Paul is addressing so many of these topics in this letter. Additionally, it gives us a little bit of insight in learning that this isn't the first time Paul has written to the Corinthians. All right, so he might be readdressing a couple of things. 
So the issue here in Corinth, at least in this chapter, the issue here is sexual morality. More explicitly, there's a dude sleeping with his stepmom. And so what Paul is going to urge the Corinthians to do is to exercise church discipline. Now we're going to get into the, the, the details of what that is and what that looks like from this context, but I want to say a couple of things regarding church discipline. First, I think we need to define it. Church discipline is a strong confrontation of sin where one is called to return to Christ, receive his mercy, and experience the grace of restoration in the church. I'll say that one more time. Church discipline is a strong confrontation of sin where one is called to return to Christ receive his mercy, and experience the grace of restoration in the church. Church discipline is designed by God in a way that lovingly builds up the church. It may not necessarily feel like that in the middle of the process, but that's its intention. For instance, the writer uh, of Hebrews in chapter 12 says this, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the idea of church discipline is to confront someone in their sin, call them to repentance, but also see that they are hopefully restored so that the fruit of righteousness may be uh, uh, revealed. And so that's what ultimately Paul is getting at in this first passage. So here it is. He's going to give the Corinthians both instruction and a strong rebuke. Here we go. Verse 2, or actually we're still in verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, so that's why he's writing to them, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. All right, so he's giving them instruction and rebuke. The instruction is this. You need to remove this individual from fellowship. And that's harsh. I know that sounds harsh. He expands on that in verses 3 through 5. I won't read all of it, but he he expands on that in verses 3 through 5. For example, he says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver this man to Satan. All of it sounds harsh, but the reality is that this individual's sin has gotten out of hand. In addition to that, this sin is known among the church. It has also become public. And we'll get to that in just a bit. Everything has gotten out of hand, so it's not only damaging the individual, but the church is being damaged as a result, and it's bearing false witness to the world. Listen, church discipline is always done with a heavy heart, and it is a last resort. There's a lot of steps that need to take place in order to get to where Paul is at with the Corinthians. If you consider Matthew 18, this is not on your notes, but if you consider Matthew 18, Jesus gives us this process of what it looks like. That if a brother is in sin, you go to them one-on-one, and you're calling them to repentance. You're talking to them about what's going on. If they continue, two or three witnesses go with you. If they continue and persist in their sin, you take it to the church. There's a lot of steps involved 
before we get to this point, but here it's gotten out of hand. So the instruction is that this individual needs to be removed from fellowship. Now here's the rebuke. Paul is saying that this individual's sin, or sin in general, is being tolerated among the Corinthians. Back to verse 1, he goes on to say, the kind of sin that is not even tolerated even among pagans. He's saying, te pasaste, like this is way too much. Like not even those who don't know Jesus would approve of this. Like this is how deep and vile and ungodly this is. As a result, the Corinthians are arrogant rather than being grieved by this individual's sin, by how it's having an effect on the church. They're tolerant of his sin because it's become known and it's now public. And here's the thing. The Corinthians have done nothing. They've done nothing about it. They think too highly of themselves and they think too low of sin. And so as a result, there is no distinction between the congregation and the culture. Alan mentioned last week uh, how the division that's taking place in the Corinthian church is leading to immaturity. And so here we're seeing how their immaturity is leading to this tolerance of sin rather than a repentance of sin. Further, we need to understand why Paul is taking such a strong position on removing this person from fellowship. Once more, the Corinthians have become tolerant of their sin, of this individual's sin. Uh, The Corinthians have done nothing about it. In other words, they have not confronted this individual about their sin. The public is aware and is watching, so now the church is bearing false witness. But in addition to that, the thing about this is that this individual's sin, it's not a mistake, it's it's not a, a spiritual relapse. This is habitual, unrepentant sin. It's not a struggle, it's a stronghold. It's not uh, something that they're trying to work through. It's a way that they're living. It has become a lifestyle. And so the matters of church discipline may sound harsh and unloving, but we need to understand that the purpose of church discipline is not because we're the, the holiness police, but both to see an individual repent of their sin and for the church to lovingly restore them back into fellowship. It's this brilliant balance of the two. Therefore, it's a process that we need to take seriously, as he's calling them to take it seriously. And it begins by us first evaluating ourselves. See, many churches who do exercise church discipline at times have done so poorly Oftentimes, it's done with the words of Scripture, but with a spirit of slander. And so we need to check ourselves, should we walk into a process like this ever? One writer goes on to say this, you should be aware that feelings of anger, bitterness, hatred, and a desire for vengeance can be cloaked in motives and purposes that look righteous. And so we need to check ourselves first as we go on about confronting sin. Additionally, to the Galatians, Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who know Jesus, should restore him in a spirit of 
gentleness. So you're going to confront sin. You're not going to compromise on what's going on. But the idea here is that we're going to restore them gently back into fellowship as they repent of their sin. All of our days are a life of repentance. And in this case, it seems as though this individual is unrepentant. In other words, there's no change. They're not turning away from their sin. There isn't confession of sin. They're not trying to run away from their sin. They're indulging in it. It's become a lifestyle. And that's why they must need, that's why they need to be removed. Now to verse 5, which is always the one that that really gets a lot of people because it's really harsh, right? Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Right? So the first one, he's saying deliver him to Satan. This individual is not only in walking in unrepentant sin, Paul is saying, therefore hand him over to his sin. Give him up to the desires of his flesh. If they do not wish to repent, hand them over to the way of the world. Why does he reference Satan? Because Satan uh, has this dominion in the world, this opposition to God. So he's saying, hand them over to their sin. And then he adds for the destruction of their flesh. This isn't like Paul is saying, I hope they die. No, he's not saying that. The idea of the flesh here, and you'll see this throughout the New Testament, but the idea of the flesh here has to deal with our sinful nature our selfish passions, things opposed to God. And so Paul is saying, hand him over to his sin so that, and here it is, hand him over to his sin so that he gets so deep in his passions that he's devastated. That at some point he's broken. Hence the end of verse 5. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So that when he's devastated, when he is sorrowful, when he repents, the church sweeps in and restores the individual. It's this really great picture of Paul is saying, hey, leave them to their sin, leave the door open. So that when they experience sorrow, when they experience grief, when they experience uh, uh, devastation, and they repent, you got to go after them. You got to sweep in after them. You got to restore them into fellowship. And this is hard. Like in 1 Corinthians 5, it seems kind of clean. It's not always like that. Our church over the last 15 years has walked through at least one public case of church discipline, it wasn't clean. Yet at the same time, just consider, church, with me for a little bit, consider how many individuals, how many families have repented of their sin before it got to this. Right? That's crazy. You just think about it in the last seven years for us. This one theologian writes, his name is F.F. Bruce, one of the tests of true spirituality, check it, is a readiness a readiness to set those who stumble by the wayside on the right road again in sympathetic spirit. 
there's a readiness from the church. We're not going to tolerate sin, but when one repents of it, ponte las pilas, like we're ready to go. If this topic is a little challenging, what I would encourage you to do, and this will be up on the screen in a little bit, what I would encourage you to do is, is read this passage alongside 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I won't read all of it, but it'll be up on the screen. One of the things that Paul goes on to tell them is, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. All right, pause. Here's what's going on. The individual from 1 Corinthians 5 who is living in sin, right? right? And Paul is saying, hand them over to Satan. Remove them from fellowship. It seems as though is the same individual from 2 Corinthians 2. And in 2 Corinthians 2, we see that the individual repents of their sin. And so now Paul is not only telling them to restore him gently into fellowship, but he's telling him to move quickly on it, right? He goes on to say, uh, move quickly so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Don't let him sit in that. As soon as he repents, sweep in, restore him, work through whatever it is you need to work through, but restore him into fellowship. The purpose of, of, of church discipline is always restoration. That's the hope that individuals would be restored. It's also a reminder that at the same time, the Christian life is one of repentance. Repentance is never, never shame-driven. It is always driven by grace. And so we come to verse 6. So Paul once more kind of touches on their, their arrogance here. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know? And you're going to hear that type of question over and over again in this letter. He uses this kind of question about 10 times. Do you not know? Do you not know? In other words, this, this should have been obvious. This is something I've taught you. This is something that is written. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. We'll pause there. Here we go. The whole idea of a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's, it's kind of like the expression that we have, uh, one bad apple can spoil the bunch. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? So this is similar. What Paul is saying here is just a little bit of yeast affects the entire loaf. In the context of what's happening, he's saying a little bit of unchecked sin, a little bit of unrepentant sin, a little bit of living in sin affects the whole body. That's really fascinating, isn't it? Because up until now, and he doesn't do so, but Paul doesn't necessarily call this individual out by name. And it's not like he's afraid to do so. He does so in his other letters. He will call out individuals by name. But here, he's addressing the whole church. It's a communal responsibility. It's a communal consequence. And so here's the takeaway for you and I. Right? Ready? Your private sin 
your personal sin has communal effects. It affects the body. And yet you might still push and say, it's my problem. It's not hurting anyone. I don't see what the big deal is. And the thing is, those are signs of selfish motivations and deep, deeply rooted pride. Your private sin has communal consequences. It's a result of forgetting who you are in Christ. It's a result of forgetting who God says we are. The church is not individualistic. The church is communal. One writer goes on to say, Robert Kyung, he says, it is so easy to forget that when one member is struggling with suffering and sin, we are all affected since we are all part of Christ's body. Such sacrifice for others is costly in terms of time, energy, and self-denial, but such intentional ministry builds up the church in love and is at the core of God's vision of church discipline. It has communal effects. We have communal responsibilities. A holy church is a repenting church. Next, Paul addresses that a holy church is a remembering church. Verse 7, cleanse up, and this is 7 through 8, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. All right, here we go. So he's telling them, cleanse out the old leaven. In other words, who you are, Christian, is not who you used to be anymore. Therefore, if there's any sin in your life, if you are walking in sin, living in sin, walking in unconfessed sin, he's saying, put to death, get rid of it, repent of it. Why? Because he goes on to say, you really are unleavened. Because you really are pure. Because you really are holy. You are holy. You are loved. You are new. You are unstained, Christian. It's not so that you would be holy. It is because you are holy. And he gives a reason for that. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We are pure, not because of our own acts of purity, but because of the purity of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. It's what John says when he sees Jesus. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God, who entered into human history as the God-man, Jesus Christ, came into our sinful mess and took responsibility for our sin on the cross. Was buried, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will one day return. 
This image of the Passover lamb is a callback to Exodus 12, where God commanded that his people brush the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. And anyone who did this would be sheltered from the wrath of God as he poured it out on the firstborn in in the land. But their sheltering wasn't a result of the intensity of their faith. Their sheltering was a result of the blood of the lamb. In a greater way, we are sheltered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Holiness is pursued because of what God has done for us, because of who he says you are. So let's embody that. Let it have an impact on you. Live in light of what God has said. If we're really just summarizing verse 7 and really 8, if we're summarizing, Paul is saying, remember the gospel. Remember who you are. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. You are holy because he has made you holy. And so he concludes with verse 8. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, Leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The festival here is is language from the Old Testament, but he's referencing really the, the Lord's Supper. He's referencing communion. He's saying communion is a festival. It's not a funeral. It's a festival. It's a celebration. It's a celebration of God's work for us through Jesus. It's a celebration of God's grace for us in repentance. It's a celebration of God's goodness as he draws near to us. It's a celebration of God's presence among the church family as reconciled brothers and sisters. This meal is a reminder that the church is not individualistic, but communal. And so he's like, we're not going to pursue this with, with malice and evil. We don't celebrate it this way. This is not who we are anymore. Communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table is, it is the grace of a wake-up call. That Jesus has died for the sin that you haven't confessed. That Jesus has paid for your stubbornness through his sacrifice. So Paul says, let us have this meal with sincerity and truth. Let's respond because of God's work for us. We don't receive this meal, and I know this is a struggle for many. We don't receive this meal in perfection, but with sincerity and truth. Whose truth? Your truth? No, no, no. God's truth. And that's why we both remember and celebrate it. The Lord's Supper is not a meal of guilt, but grace. It's not a meal of fear, but fellowship. It's not a meal for the perfect, but for the purchased. A holy church is a remembering church. And so finally, we come to verses 9 through 13. A holy church is a reaching church. Again, here we get this glimpse uh, that Paul has written to them before. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he's already written to them about a few things. And the point of this section is that the church is a witness. The church is a witness to a watching 
world. See, our desire is to be shaped by the gospel, both with our lips and our lives. And so Paul begins in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, the greedy, swindlers, idolaters, since you would need to go out of this world. It seems as though when Paul wrote to them about this, what they ended up doing was disassociating completely from those who don't know Jesus, from unbelievers. Right? And so Paul is clearing it up. Right? He's saying, no, 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 no. Did I say that you were better than them? No, no, no. What I was saying is uh, there's a distinction. Live in a way that there is a distinction between you and the world. Right? That's what Paul's ultimately getting at. The irony is that the Corinthians did the opposite, right? The Corinthians ended up disassociating from those who don't know Jesus and then like siloed themselves and began, uh, siloed themselves and, and began tolerating sin. That was the irony of this. I'm like, all right, we're not going to hang out with non-Christians. Also, sin is cool. Right? They tolerated a dude who took his dad's wife and then rejected those outside of the church. That's what the Corinthians are doing. Paul is saying, no, that's not... Again, the whole, like, you're killing me, Smalls. No, that's not what it was. Live in a way that there is distinction. Right? Between those who don't know Jesus and you, the church. And he kind of gives this reason for it. Right? Since then, you would need to go out of the world. In other words... How will the world know Jesus if we're not around the world? It's not possible. We are Jesus' witnesses. Many of you are doing that in your jobs. Holiness is not a call to isolation. If you consider the words of Jesus for a moment, this is John 17. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But check it, here's what he says. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In short, you should have non-Christian friends, yet there should be a distinction in the way we live compared to the way they live. So then, he adds another clause. But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, revival, or drunkard. This is where a lot of churches will say, okay, so what he's saying here is excommunicate the one who is not repentant of their sin. Kick them out, throw them out of the church, have nothing to do with them ever. And some churches have done it this way. We're just going to cut off all kinds of... Uh, conversations. We're going to cut off anything with this individual. I don't necessarily think that's what Paul means. I think what he's addressing, again, is a distinction. And the distinction here is the individual who is unrepentant, don't treat them as though they are a brother. Don't treat them as though they are a Christian. It's a distinction between genuine Christians and those who are not. This individual, again, is not only in love with the world, he has been consumed by the world. And so then, well, what is our role? What is our role in that? When there are individuals who are living in sin, and we want to call them to repentance. We want to live in a way that is 
holy and honorable around them. We want to pray for them that they would repent of their sin. And in that repentance, what happens? The church sweeps in and restores them in the fellowship. But as far as treating them as a Christian, Paul is saying, that's not what we're going to do. In the context of the church, they're not going to receive the Lord's Supper. And so he continues, For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So he gives two things, right? So the first one is, who are we to judge outsiders? In other words, what business do we have judging unbelievers? See, too many Christians get upset because unbelievers don't respond like believers. There's a reason for that, right? That because they're unbelievers. They don't know Jesus. I mean, think about it real quick. How many of our unbelieving friends have we driven away from the church because of our judgments? Church, our job is not to judge unbelievers. We used to be them. Our job is to reach them. Our job is to not tolerate sin because it ruins our witness. What Paul is telling the Corinthians and us is, hey, instead of judging outsiders, get your house in order first. And then once more, the distinction is, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Saying inside the church, getting our house in order is a different ballgame. It's a different story. And he quotes Deuteronomy 13.5, purge the evil person from among you. Inside of the church, this means two things within the context of sin. Number one, communal responsibility, right? Congregation, whatever you want to call it. The communal responsibility is to confront sin and not tolerate it. We are accountable to one another because we are part of the body of Christ. And I know that's hard. And I know that's uncomfortable. But we do so with a lot of grace. Do so with a lot of love. We do so earnestly. But we do not tolerate sin. In addition to that, the prayer is, that the grace of repentance takes place. The Christian life is a repenting one. And so when we confront sin, the, the goal, the hope, is to see repentance. It's to grow in knowing and living like Jesus. And Paul says that, that actually becomes a witness. Because it's the distinction between the world and the church. Therefore, let's seek to live out our faith as a holy and humble community. A holy church is a reaching church. The church that pursues holiness doesn't do so in order to become holy, but because the church is holy based on what God has done for us. 
We pursue holiness not because of our purity, but because of the purity of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Confrontation of sin is challenging. It's not always clean and uh, as we want it to be, and at the same time, we do not respond the way we ought to each time. Therefore, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper in a moment, humble yourself before the Lord. Take the log out of your eye first. Church discipline, though it's a last resort, is necessary for the purity of the church, not for the sake of retribution, but restoration. Let's not dismiss the grace found in this passage, the forgiveness of sin. In Christ, our Passover lamb, there is forgiveness. You cannot outsin God's grace. Let us therefore humble ourselves before the Lord together. Let us embody what Paul is telling the Corinthians. Let us go to a brother and sister in love in order to confront or confess sin. Let us turn in repentance so that we pursue holiness as we grow in knowing and living like Jesus before a watching world. And if you're not a Christian, thanks for being here. You didn't have to be here. And I got to tell you, the church is not and will not be perfect. She does not exist on this side of eternity. We are not perfect, but hopefully sincere. And where we have failed, the good news is that Jesus doesn't. He is the lamb slain for the sins of the world and is ready to pardon anyone who turns to him in faith and repentance. Church, the pursuit of holiness begins with who God says we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and the reminder of who we are, sons and daughters. Therefore, we can humbly pursue holiness. We can joyfully pursue holiness. You have forgiven us of our sin. You have redeemed us and called us new. Therefore, give us the courage to live in light of this grace. Give us the courage to lovingly and humbly confront sin for the sake of purity in the church, for the sake of witnessing to a watching world, but most of all for your glory and our good.